Lord God, your grace is enough for us, Lord. A lot of times we forget that and we forget that. The reason you sent your son is so we didn't have to work for salvation, God. We try so hard to be righteous. But God, you say that there's none righteous, no, not one. God, you have made us holy already by sending your son and giving your grace. Father, I pray that we will be able to set that. God, just to thrive in the grace that you've provided. Father, I pray that we can accept your love and fully understand what it means to be loved by God that created the universe. Lord, you say that as much as you love the Son, it's just the same as he loves us. God, when you look at us, you see Jesus. You don't see our past, you don't see our stories, God. But you see your Son and the blood that he shed. God, thank you for that salvation, Father. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You guys can sit down. If you want to open to the book of Malachi, we are at the end of chapter 2 today. Um, and this is our, our fourth week in Malachi as we're walking through this book and learning more about who God is and who we are and how we respond and all those things. Um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago just God's pursuit of us uh, and what that looks like now. And we looked at 2 Timothy 3.16 just briefly that Scripture is God-inspired uh, and corrects and teaches and rebukes and trains us in this this concept of God pursuing us uh, through His Word. And the time we spend there, the time we spend studying, seeking to understand, seeking to know more about God and what He is doing with us. And so uh, that, that's one of the reasons why we're walking through this book. But today is is going to be a little more difficult. Um, the end of chapter two in Malachi is one of the more difficult passages in Scripture to understand to deal with, to work with. And not only that, but just in our context and where we live culture-wise, there are issues that come up in this passage that are that are very touchy. Um, and so today, I'm not going to pretend to know everything about this passage. I'm not going to pretend to have the answers about the questions in there because there are plenty. Um, I'm not going to pretend to stand here and give you, here's what God is specifically saying to these people and then to us. I'm going to give you some ideas, I'm going to give you some thoughts, and then I'm going to give you a holistic, this is what God is doing in his pursuit of these people and then with us today. And so, as we begin that, I want to address again this idea of context, or even the idea of co-text. Context being the issues surrounding a text. If you go to Scripture and you begin to look at the questions will come up, what is happening with the people that are being addressed? Where are they living? What is their community like? What is their situation? What is God doing with them? What time frame is it? What are the communities around them doing? Where are they living specifically? Which will help us learn and, and draw from the text what God is doing. And then co-text would be what is actually in the passage. When you open the pages and begin to look, what is surrounding what's in there? And so those are two things that we've got to consider today. Context is a little harder. We've talked about that before because Malachi is not easily dated. We can put him after, we can put the book after they come back from the exile in Babylon, uh, Babylon and it's somewhere around Ezra and Nehemiah, and he kind of floats in that time period. We're not really sure how to pinpoint. However, the context today is going to be important as we look at. 
Um, and as I say that, I want to at least try to give you an illustration, a picture of if you were to go fast forward time machine and hit 100 years from now or even 200 or 1,000, and you're doing some historical research and you were to somehow come across a, an iPhone 4 from 2011 and you were to, yeah, you were to pick that up or able to pick up just communication off of that phone and you were able to pick it up and begin to look at and to read in comparison to what other writings we have today. If you were to go to pick up a book, it's, it's pretty simple and pretty mainstream. If you go into Barnes and Nobles, you walk in, you buy a book, you open it, and you've got table of contents, you've got an author, you may have a, a bibliography of that guy, you know, just a short bio of who he is or who she is, and then you'll have the book. And you've got chapter one through whatever it is, depending on what you're reading. And, but it's fairly straightforward. Most books are similar. And that's the, our, that's our written form of communication, which will communicate some about what we believe, what goes on in our culture, and all those things. However, if you go and pick up a phone, all of a sudden, over the last ten years, probably less, there's this dramatic shift in communication on our phone that is just a strung together letters, symbols, that don't make up words, but somehow we understand. Some of you guys are still learning. Uh, the ones that are, you know, a little older are still learning when your kids send you something. You go, what? Uh, I, I do that still. I mean, I get a text. I'm like, Ryan, help me because I have no idea what this 17-year-old is talking about on my phone right now. But if you were to fast forward 100 years and then get that, it would be very difficult to begin to piece together what what is the string of letters, even LOL. Why? Because you can't transplant yourself a thousand years back to put yourself inside that culture to really understand, laugh out loud. If you were even to, even able to get to the point where you understood the L, the O, and the L, laugh out loud on a phone, but you're, you're writing, what are you talking about? And so it would be very difficult to do that. In the same way, some of this passage today we don't have all of the pieces in, in what we have uh, as far as as far back as we can go in the text. What we have originally we look at and then we build our translations off of. We don't have all of the pieces per se. And please hear me when I'm saying what I'm not trying to get at today is I think scripture is whole. I think scripture is God's word. I think it's authentic. I think it's God breathed. I think it's for us to use today to learn about God for him to speak to us and use in our lives. Totally supportive of. However, I also at least want to be aware of and address and be honest that there are some passages we don't have at all. And this is one of those passages we look at and there are a few options that are pieced together, that are put together. And you can go different directions on really how you address the issue that's there and what's there. So I just want, I want to start with that, just understanding Number one, I don't have all the answers, nor am I going to pretend to. You probably, you, I know that you don't think I have all the answers. I mean, I'm 30 years old. Are you kidding me? However, I'm attractive, so that has got to give me some bonus points. That was a good laugh. Thank you. All 12 of you. Everybody was laughing at that one. Yeah, awesome. So I'm not going to pretend that, but at the same time, I want to make sure that we're aware of what we're dealing with. Um, as as I begin to address and we talk through this passage so that you don't walk out and think I'm a heretic. You may do that anyways, and that's okay. Because um, I may be, God may have to correct me on what I'm thinking here. But at the same time, know that this one is not a concrete here we go. This one's hard, and this one's difficult to deal with. So as we begin, we've walked through Malachi up to this point and seen 
uh, a basic cycle or a basic process of how God is speaking through his messenger to these people. And he's making a statement, there's a question asked, and then there's a response. And we've gone through and we've looked at God has addressed his people and he said, I love you. As a father would say to his child before it, you know, time for discipline, and we discuss that, and the people respond with, how have you loved us? And God says, I chose Jacob, and I hated Esau. And you've got the two brothers, and he brings that picture to light, that I chose you as a people group to bless the world, to bless all mankind, in spite of who you were. And he goes from there, and he addresses issues of sacrifices and what they're bringing to the table to worship God, and basically the the way that they now are now worshiping is not good enough. And they've viewed God and showed God in their actions that you really aren't that important to us in what we're bringing to the, to the table. And then he addresses the priest and how they've handled things in an ungodly manner and how the guys who were supposed to be uh, the benchmark for this is, this is how we follow God. This is how we know Yahweh. This is how we interact. This is how we worship. This is how we stand apart. As a community of God, these people have failed not only to act that out in their own life, but then to teach the nation how to do that. And so now we get to this point, and there's a little bit of a shift. There's still a statement, and there's still a question, but up until this point, it is God making a statement, and then in the passage, it's the people making a response and question, and then God discussing. And it's going to change here, and it's going to go to more of, we've talked about Malachi, whether Malachi is actually, his name was Malachi, or this is just the author, that name is taken out of chapter 3 in My Messenger. That's up for debate, and we've discussed that. So for today, I'm just going to say Malachi's writing with the understanding that I don't know if that was his name. So we can just all agree to go from there. So basically, you've got Malachi making statements and then asking questions and then addressing. And so there's a little bit of a shift on who is, who is doing the speaking here. But in verse 10, it says, Have we not all one father? Again, as we work through this book and we're looking just at context, even though it kind of floats around and we can't pinpoint, the concept of community is all through these pages. The concept of the community of God, of the, of the community that God is working in and through for his kingdom and his, for his plan of putting back to rights his creation is here. And so in this address, as we end chapter 2, he says, have we not all one father? And it could be a reference to Abraham. It could be a reference to Yahweh. Um, God, at this point, is at least not typically referred to as father. Earlier in the book, we've, we've seen that God says, am I not a father? Am I not a master? As he's making statements. Uh, but it's not until Jesus shows up do we really see a distinction in the way God is defined or described in the way he acts in God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. That doesn't take place until later. So, with that being said, this could be a reference to, have we not one father, Yahweh, but it also could be a reference back to Abraham, because Abraham is the father of the nation. They know that God chose Abraham to create Israel for him to birth, uh, obviously, this nation that God will then bless mankind with. So, it could be either one. It really doesn't change what's happening, because it's, again, drawing back to, have we not all one father, are we not all in this same community? He says, had we not all one father, did not one God create us? And so it obviously takes us back at a minimum to Abraham and then even all the way back into Genesis and the creation narrative of. I mean, their belief about how we got here in the system they believed in and the stories they told and how they shared with their kids was, you go back to Genesis and let me share with you how we got here. When their child would say, Dad, why are we here? Or how did I get here? 
the creation narrative is brought out. And let me tell you the story of what God did to make man. And we'll get into that when we're in Genesis and uh, further discussion. But taking them back again in the story, in their history and what they know and how they understand God and how they understand their community. Have we not one father and has not one God created us? Are we not all a part of the same community? There's your statement. Again, drawing them back to community, and that's going to be important at the end, but we're all a part of this community of God. And then he says in a question, why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? So there's an issue. So we've gone from addressing uh, the nation as a whole, I love you, to the people of the nation who are bringing sacrifices, and then to the priest, and now we're going back to the community as a whole, and there's an address of a breaking of faith. The system is broken within the community. And the statement is made, have we not one Father, have we not all been created by God? We're all one community. Why then have we profaned the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? So, in verse 11, we're going to get into what does this look like. It says, Judah has broken faith, which is kind of a serious deal. Our relationship with God is based on what? Faith. Our trust in God for him to make us right again. I mean, there, there's a response on our part, but our connection with God initially and throughout our life is based on faith. And it's the same for this community here. Faith is the part of their relationship that is the connection with God. Obviously, the way that that plays out in worship is different for them because they're under a different set of laws in the Old Testament. However, faith is the essential component of knowing God. In here, Judah is accused of breaking faith. And why is that? It says, a detestable thing has been committed in Israel. And in Jerusalem, Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, a couple of things come up here. What is being this, what is being addressed in this passage? If we go back to, to Deut- there are two things. If we go back to Deuteronomy 7, which you don't have to do, I'm going to just, we're going to move a little, not near as much as we have in the past. If I can find Deuteronomy, does anybody know where it's at? I'm kidding. I know where it is. That's a joke. Sort of. Uh, Deuteronomy 7 reads, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, this is verse 1, you are entering into to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, uh, I'm sorry, last week, this reminded me, last week I was making a reference to uh, Shatim. Is that correct? Yes. To Shatim, I did not pronounce it that way, uh, and so I apologize. Any of you who are in here and heard me say it differently, uh, it sounded much like a curse word. <laughs> in fact, it, it was, um, with an M on the end. And so I just apologize. I had not done my due diligence in studying the pronunciation of words, and so I called my good friend Steve and said, give me your assessment. And he said, well, I ought to change that. So just apologies. I'm sorry. It is Shatim. It's not the other way. So let's move on. Uh, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the... <laughs> I didn't do it again. All these people, there are seven nations, seven nations larger and stronger than you. Verse 2, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no tree with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons and take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord 
your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So he is telling them in his commands, do not marry these people. The nations that surround you, that you will go in and take their land, destroy them. Because if you don't, the purpose that I am choosing you and setting you apart for and giving you the land is so that everyone will know that I am God. I am using you to reach the world. To bring about man being right, I'm using you, I've chosen you. And so, in that, do not marry these other people because they will lead you to worship other gods. Now, we also see throughout the narrative of the Old Testament that even though God makes this very harsh, destroy them, they're all out, grace is given even to those uh, who he says don't give it to. And so we see God is still gracious in the midst of what he's doing and it's not, what am I trying to get at? God loves people and God is bringing about redemption and God's call for these folks is do not do this because they will lead you astray and it happens. But at the same time, for those who respond to God from those communities who recognize who God is, the purpose of the nation is to bring them in to know God. And that's exactly what God does. So it's not a strict, here we go, we're cutting it, you're out, period, and you're in. That's not it. So, but he was, but he was very plain, do not do this. If we look at 1 Kings 11, and it's the story of Solomon, uh, in, in chapter 11 it tells you that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines who were all of foreign nations. The man was a moron. This guy was the smartest dumb guy who ever existed, right? And we all can make the jokes about, you know, having one wife and any more than that is just a struggle when all the guys will laugh, but we know that we're actually the stupid ones in the relationship and we screw up and that's actually what we're going to get to in a little while. Um, <laughs> funny, huh? But regardless, here's Solomon who asks for wisdom of God and is granted that. The son of David, who is given the Davidic covenant that someone will sit on the throne of your line for all eternity, and Jesus comes out of that. His son Solomon marries 700 women from four nations in which God strictly forbid him to do. And so the king goes, hey, that's cool. I'm going to marry 700 women, and I'm going to have sex with 300 other ones who are foreign, and this is going to be great. And what does that do? It leads him away and worship away from God. Exactly what God said. Don't do this because they'll lead you away. Solomon does it and it leads him away. And eventually they end up in captivity in Babylon. Well, they've come out of that and here they are now. And it is it, it's at least a 50-50, if not a 100%, and both of these things are happening, that they have gone away and begun to do the same thing. If we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, it, it happened. Ezra gets back and he, and he shows up and... Uh, in the in the country, and he sees here are all these countrymen who are Israelites who are Jewish who have intermarried with the foreign people around us. To the point where Ezra, uh, Ezra chapter ten, he even goes as far as to say, "Leave your wives, your foreign wives, and your children." Which again, we'll get to that in a minute too. So, possibility that he is addressing the issue, their breaking of faith has to do with. The being disobedient to God's call back in Deuteronomy 7 that says, do not marry of the foreign people around you because they will lead you astray. And here they are out of captivity faced with the same struggles they were in before. The other option, as, as you read the text, you also have to be aware of the fact that it's written, it says Judah has desecrated the sanctuary uh, the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign God. And so you have, you have it in singular form. You have the daughter of a foreign god. 
And so it could be drawing, and in fact, this would be drawing out the idea of they are at a minimum, if they're not intermarrying, they are at a minimum engaging in the in, in mixed worship in terms of they are worshiping Yahweh still, but they are also engaging themselves in pagan worship more than likely of a sexual nature, which was very common back then. But then you have this verbiage of the marrying of the daughter of a foreign god. And so at a minimum, we know that this is communicating. What are they doing? They're engaging in worship of foreign gods, which is strictly what God said. I'm choosing you to worship me to reach the world. Don't worship anybody else because I'm the only true God. And Malachi writes and says, Men of Judah, you are detestable. You've profaned the name of God. You've done exactly what God told you not to do. You're completely ineffective because you are engaging in pagan worship and you're not worshiping Yahweh the way that He has commanded you to do. You've done what you wanted. You've done what may be convenient for you. You've done what feels good for you, that looks attractive to you. You did what you wanted to do. And for that, and, and, and possibly you have married, actually married these women and are engaging in worship fully with them. Verse 12 says, As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Again, this idea of community. Are we not all of one Father? Are we not all created by one God? We are one community that God has chosen to reach the world. And he says, the one who is engaged in this, may he be cut off from the community. This isn't even, hey, this is a warning. Hey, this is a slap on the hand. This is a, you're out, bro. So it goes on. Verse 13, it says, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. And so here you have these men who are still coming to offer their worship to God, to Yahweh. And they're weeping, they're wailing, and they're asking, why is God not answering our prayers? I mean, they're still in the condition of, we're not fully reestablished as a nation yet. We don't have the power that we once did in the reign of David and the reign of Solomon. God is not giving victory to us over our enemies. We are still broken. Our land is still desolate. This isn't a fun place to be in. Not only that, God, where are you at in this whole thing? We're still bringing worship to you, and you know you don't respond to us. He goes on and says, you've been faithless. I'm not responding to you because of the way that you're living. Which, which is easily transferable to us when we come to God. What's going on in our lives? When we come to the table in pursuing God, as God is always pursuing us, the same way God is still pursuing the people here in Malachi as he's addressing his issues, he's still pursuing them in relationship and in using them. But they're coming to God to worship and they're saying, where are you at? And there may be times for us when we come to God, when we come to church and we sit down and we read our Bible, we have a quiet time at home, or we sit down to pray, or we sit down with our kids to do a family devotion, or whatever it is that you do personally that helps you connect with and communicate with God, and you go, where are you at? 
which may not always be the case, but at times it's at least a flag for us to sit down and go, God, search my heart and tell me what is wrong with me. What am I doing that is breaking communication with you? What am I doing in my life that needs to be changed, that needs to be addressed, that needs to be confessed, that needs to be taken care of to reestablish the communication and the intimacy that we have together? Obviously, believe as a church at Rockwood and part of our doctrinal statements is that knowing God, we've received that grace and it's nothing that we earn, but in that relationship, there are times when because of our own actions, that may place us in a point where we don't have the same communication with God that we once did. That God may not be using us the way that He once did because of our actions and our decisions to either move away, to not seek after, to not be used, to do what we want, to do what's convenient. And those may be times where we don't hear from God. And these folks are specifically, why are we not hearing from you? Why are our sacrifices not of worth? And God says, because you're jacked up, you're broken. And says it's because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Verse 15 says, Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. Let's stop there just for a second. As we get into this, the answer for... Why are you not paying attention to our worship? Why are you not paying attention to our offerings? Why are our tears, our prayers, and all that we're doing and pleading with you worthless? And it's an issue of relationship inside the community. Specifically between the men of Judah and their wives. Now, it's as we get, this is where it gets difficult and it's not completely clear as to what's being said and the context in which it's being said and what really is being communicated. However, to begin with, we know that the men are not acting in faith the way that they're supposed to be responding to their wives. That's clear. Which is a very interesting concept. Because for us today, marriage is a private, we go in our home and we deal with our issues and it all stays in here. And that's my business. And if there's a breaking of a marriage, it's still right here. This is my business. There may be people who are open about and seeking counseling and going through things, but at the same time, it's not a community concept. And here it's being addressed as a community concept. The, the relationship is not a community. Obviously, my relationship with my wife is not yours. That's why she's my wife and not yours. Especially if you're a woman. That's a whole new set of issues. But at the same time, what happens between us is a community concept. So, at, and as we get for the, and I, I've listened to, to multiple sermons and read different things and read different sermons uh, as I've looked at this. The, I mean, the typical track that, that will be taken with this passage when it is taught is let me tell you that God hates divorce and let me tell you how marriage is supposed to be lined out. And well, in fact, as I was listening to one, and I'm not saying this to bash 
other other preachers and other pastors, but to just address what is typically thrown out in the the oddity with which it's thrown out. As as we worked through this passage, as I was listening to one, we went to Second Corinthians and talked about the yoking of yourself with somebody else, which is typically drawn together, especially in student ministry, which I'm in quite a bit and I've been there a while. That talk or that message is communicated to talk about who you date. God says, don't be unincluded yoked with unbelievers. And so, you don't need to date somebody that's not a Christian. God said it. Let's go. When actually the concept that's being presented there is the picture of you've got two animals who are being yoked together with a piece of wood attached together to go and to work and to accomplish a task. The concept is don't enter into relationships. They're intimate relationships that are going to be consistent all the time where you're going to be doing dutiful tasks because of the influence that that one can have on the other and where that will go. When you yoke yourself together with a business partner, where do you go? We're making decisions together. Where's the money going? Where are we investing? What is important? Is it the customer? Is it the money? Is it our employees? And so it's a lot bigger than who are you dating. I mean, it's how you live. Anyways, but it, and I'm sorry, I just ran a rabbit trail and I apologize. I didn't mean to do that. Um, but the passage was taken to, hey, as we begin to address, we're looking at Judah and they have married women from other nations and four nations that have led them astray. Look at Second Corinthians. You're not supposed to even date these people because they will lead you astray. And I'm not arguing against or for or any of that. However, it gave, us, it gave us a picture of here's what you're supposed to do as a Christian. You date a nice Christian and you marry a nice Christian, which I think is a good concept. That's great. That's a wise decision. If you know Jesus, you should probably marry somebody that knows Jesus. Marriage will be a lot easier in raising kids and what you decide and where you go to church and how you spend your money and all those things. That's a good choice. It's a godly choice. But at the same time, we worked over here and got to the end and said, God hates divorce. And you know what was addressed right after that? The percentage of Christian divorces compared to that of the secular world. And most of you know that the Christian percentage is much higher. Or not much. It is higher. It's not significant, but it is higher than the secular world. And it was odd, as we studied a passage, that the first thing that was communicated Second Corinthians, don't yoke yourself with unbelievers because they lead you astray and it will lead to a broken marriage. So make sure you marry a Christian. And then on the other side, all of the Christians who have gotten married, more of us have gotten divorced than the people that don't know Jesus. It was a very odd look at this passage and how it, how it was formed. And irritating to the point where you it wasn't looked at in a, what's really here? What are the questions? Is God actually saying, I hate divorce? There are three different, there are three different ways this thing is translated. Because of all the pieces aren't here, once you get to verse 16, all the pieces aren't there. The singular pronoun does not exist in the Hebrew in the passage for it to say, I hate divorce. One way it's supplied, and here, here at least in, uh, the, the international version, the NIV, is what I have. I'm not sure what you're reading. It's supplied there. Whoever translated put that there. And I'm not arguing against that concept. The Septuagint, if you look at it, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew 
Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, reads that, if I hate divorce. Which those guys were much closer to that time period, that culture, and that understanding than we are today. Another way that it is translated, because of the lack of the singular personal pronoun, it's translated in a neutral, that divorce, how is it, how is it translated? Basically, divorce is me, is how it comes out. And again, what I'm not trying to do is take a position here. What I want to do is address the issue that this passage isn't clear to state. What we do see, though, what we do see is a progression. If you go back and look at Deuteronomy 24 for the nation of Israel, they were allowed, men were allowed to give your wife a certificate of divorce because you were unhappy with her. That was the stipulation. If you're unhappy with your wife, you can write a certificate and give it to her, and she's gone. The stipulation on a divorce from Deuteronomy 24 was that if you divorced her, she married somebody else, and they got divorced, you couldn't marry her again, because that was detestable. But we see a, we, we see a progression. I always loved Walter Nesbaum, who was a teaching pastor here. He would give us the the Old Testament illustration of what was happening, what God was doing, was that you have basically a shadow of a hand. If you were standing here, you could actually see this. But my hand, there's a shadow on my on my Bible right now. And as you work through the narrative of the Old Testament, the shadow, the hand got closer and closer and closer until you hit the New Testament and the hand is there. And it's evident on what God is doing. And this is one of those concepts I, I think that I would say is true. Is You've got Deuteronomy, it's allowed. It's a part of their culture, it's a part of their context. And once we get closer to what God is doing in the New Testament and Jesus showing up, you've got this shift in this move that God at a minimum is not pleased with how the men are treating their wives in doing to the point where he's saying your your sacrifices are void right now. The communication between the two of us is not working because the way that you are treating your wives, it is now affecting the community. And then once we get to Matthew 19, it's very clear that God states and takes the position and Jesus says where he where he falls on marriage and what he thinks. Now again, I understand things happen. And God understands things happen, and I'm not being an advocate for divorce, and I'm not slamming the hammer on anybody who has been in that position or have a family member or any of those things. I don't think that's God's design for us. I don't think it's God's design for when we get married that we, at some point we're unmarried. But I also recognize and understand that things happen. And some of those things are out of some people's control. And so, and again, I don't pretend, I really want to iterate, I don't pretend to know everything. And I don't pretend to stand here and go, I know it all, I've got it all together, and I've got this thing handled. But what I do want to do tonight is recognize the fact that God is talking with a community in where men are treating their wives in a way that is detestable. And very likely, it is that they are divorcing them. And it's a possibility that they're actually going and marrying these foreign women that are mentioned earlier. It's not clear if that's what it is or not, but that's a huge possibility. And God is saying, you are breaking the faith of your community because of your actions with your wife. What I want to move for us today, especially as men, 
with this concept of community and this concept of God's pursuit of us, as we even recognize in the New Testament, the picture of marriage is the man and the woman being Christ in the church. And as I said before, God is pursuing each one of us. God is in a continual pursuit of us the same way he was in the day of Malachi. In the people of Malachi. And so the picture of the man and the woman as the church in Christ is the consistent pursuit of the man, of the woman. Inside that community of faith. Obviously, again, that relationship is between the two of you. But what happens affects the community. In what God is doing with and through us. Again, one of, one of the key things and one of the uh, foundational principles that I really want to see happen with our Sunday night service as we begin to reach out to the community that Rock Point doesn't reach right now is the concept of becoming the community of God. To know God better and to respond to Him. And in that community as men, we've got to understand this concept of pursuing our wives. In doing, in recognizing that that pursuit, that nurturing and taking care of and filling our role as a man the way that Christ does for the church is an expression, is one of the best expressions of our faith. What the men of Judah have done here in the way they treat their wives and the response with the daughter of the foreign God Is, is like they're burning their faith. It's an abhorrence. It is detestable. It is the most grotesque display of faith because they're selfish. They're doing what they want. They're doing what's most attractive to them. They're doing what feels the best, what's the easiest, which can easily translate for us today What am I doing inside my family? Again, that that community idea starts with, what am I doing in my home? As a man, how am I pursuing my wife in faith, in relationship? How am I pursuing my children in faith and relationship as I raise them? How am I pursuing my five neighbors in faith and relationship? Not for bringing them to church. If you bring them to church, that's great. But that's not the point. The point of the community is that we're getting to know those people outside our home, to love them, to have a relationship, to share Christ, yes. Not for the not for the reason of bringing in and expanding Sunday night or expanding Rock Point, but for the reason of being used to impact the kingdom of God. And so we start with our wife, then we go to our kids, and then we go to our community, and then we go to those who we come in contact with. And these men of Judah have walked away from that at the very foundational point of their faith and said, again, there's, as we go further into this, verse 16, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate the man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord God, the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Again, as we look at this, there's not all the pieces there. Um, and the expression of, there's a, I have a question of, I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment. It's very possible it's a legal idiom inside of a divorce, uh, even court. And, and it's not clear for us, going back to that whole texting issue, we don't understand it. Um, and so there's not a good answer for it. This is concretely what God is doing. But what we do know 
And what we walk away from here today is God is calling these people back to the community. In a community of faith based on relationships and how they're treating one another. Again, stating, have we not all one Father? Have we not all be created by one God? Are we not all a part of this community of faith? You need to act like it. In that same way, we have one Father and we're created by one God. And we are a part of the community of God. Some of us may need to reevaluate and act like it. To be used by God. To not be selfish. To worship Him. To love Him. To exist in relationship the way that we're supposed to. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for a chance to study your word. Uh, thank you for what it is that you shed the light through that and how you pursue us and teach and instruct and correct uh, and train us in, in how we are supposed to live. God, we pray that you will give us opportunities this week to reach out to those around us, to love people um, the way that you would have us love them. We pray for opportunities to share you with those who don't know you, to be used by you as a part of your kingdom. God, teach us where to be... Uh, selfless and to make sacrifices and do the things that you would have us do as followers of you, God. Again, we thank you for your love, your grace, your forgiveness, and all that you've done. Your question we pray. Amen.